If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. A Kentucky legend, the Lion of Whitehall. Welcome to Uncommon History of the South podcast, where we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. History is full of curious stories you will never discover in any textbook. We uncover fun facts about historical people, interesting places, and everything in between. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. And in this podcast, it's going to be part three, The Lion of Whitehall. And at the end, we're going to tell why he was named the Lion of Whitehall. So it's going to kind of be like the uh, who shot Jr. You're going to have to stay around to the end to find out. So, Harold, where do you want to pick up this week? Well, Brian, last week we talked about uh, his Mexican War uh, uh, escapades and coming back as a hero from the Mexican War, uh, citizens of Fayette County presenting him with a, a sword for his heroism. And now we're going to talk about a, a little incident that he was involved in that nearly took his life in uh, it was around 18, late 1848, 1849, and I, I titled it the Foxtown Fight. Uh, this happened in a little community called Foxtown, which is not far from Clay's home in Madison County, Kentucky. Um, there was a gentleman there by the name of Squire Turner, local lawyer. Uh, he he kind of represented the slave owner interest in, uh, in that area. Uh, Clay had known him in the past, and they had had their differences as far as uh, their views on slavery and politics and so forth. And one of the things uh, Clay always did, he armed himself with a bowie knife whenever he went to, to one of these okay. fights. Okay, what's a bowie? There may be some people out here listening that understand what a bowie knife is. Why don't you take just a couple seconds and explain a bowie knife? Okay, um, James Bowie was from Logan County, Kentucky. He moved down in Louisiana and Texas uh, early in his life, um, had several land transactions and got involved in a lot of stuff down there he uh was outside of natchez mississippi um involved in a fight uh it's actually started it was going to be a duel the duel was kind of settled uh with they thought it was over they didn't actually come to shooting at one another and then the seconds and the other people in the party um started a a problem and uh next thing escalated into a basic a brawl and this guy by the name of wright attacked James Bowie with a sword cane and actually stabbed him in, actually through his lung, and Bowie pulled a knife and killed him. Um, not untypical of a frontier brawl. Uh, this went on probably more than we could imagine. Um, what set this different was that the press got a hold of it, and, and it was written about pretty extensively in the southern press, and then it made its way up into the, to the northeast and the eastern seaboard 
And for some reason, there was this fascination with this story about him stabbing this right in this brawl that was on the... So he actually did not make the knife. Oh, no, He no, was just no. the knife he had on him to no. use to defend himself. Right. Well, I'm a member of the Antique Bowie Knife Association, and we've studied this stuff for years, and maybe we'll do a podcast based you know, just on that sometimes. People are interested in it. But he never made a knife. He just used a knife. And so what happened was people that wanted to defend themselves would go into a local cutler and say, I want one like Bowie's. So, you know, that's the best we know. But knife fighting got to be so popular and such a problem that there were actually laws passed in the 1820s and 30s prohibiting the carrying of, quote, Bowie knives. So was this just a common knife that you could go into a merchant and purchase? I mean, was there anything special about them? Well, that's what we've tried to figure out for years. And there's a couple of knives that have survived that one was given to Edwin Forrest, supposedly by James Bowie, which looks like a common, quote, butcher knife, but it's a lot thicker and heavier. A butcher knife is something that a common butcher would, you'd see at a store cutting up meat or skinning, you know, animals for processing. So the, probably the first, quote, Bowie knife that James Bowie actually used was just probably maybe just a common butcher knife. Wow. So anyway, it's, it's, um, it's a subject all to itself, and like I said, maybe we'll do a podcast sometime on that. But anyway, um, Clay was carrying his Bowie knife at this Foxtown incident, and there was a gentleman there, Squire Turner, as we mentioned. He had a son, Cyrus Turner, who uh, uh, words were exchanged. Uh, Cyrus attacked Clay. And the problem Clay had, like at most places he went, there was about 20 men there that were there to, uh, I think this was a planned thing. I think they planned to attack him, maybe try to kill him. And they tackled him, basically, and took his knife away from him. Well, he fought off those guys, and uh, he was stabbed with his own knife hmm. by Cyrus Turner. And he wrestled the knife away from, back from him. He cut his hand really bad wrestling this knife away, grabbing the blade. But he wrestled it back from him, and then he stabbed Turner. <laughs> so they were both very seriously injured. Um, they took uh, Clay to his home. Um, the doctor said he didn't think he would live through the day. Um, they thought that Cyrus would be okay, that his, his wounds weren't as severe as Clay's. But So being old Cash, as tough as he was, Cash survived. <laughs> And Cyrus Turner died. So once again, he prevailed. <laughs> once again, he prevailed. It took him a little about a year to get over that, though. It was that was a very serious wound. Um, by the way, if you go to the cemetery in Richmond where Cassius Clay is buried, you will see Cyrus Turner's grave facing him, not too far away. I thought that was kind of a wow. Right. So they're they're still facing each other even in in death. Even in death, yeah, yeah. So uh, the Foxtown fight is one of the one of the fights that we. We remember so much of Clay because it, it nearly cost him his life. He just barely lived out of that. It was a very severe severe wound that he suffered. Um, and then after this uh, period of 1849, uh, he had a lot of political, I guess, disappointments. He ran for uh, governor in the Emancipation Party, which was back then, and, and he was defeated. He ran again in 1851 uh, as a Free Soil Party candidate and lost again. Um, and then he embraced the new Republican Party, and he was actually uh, nominated for vice president um, uh, of the United States, but he had had a lot of financial issues and problems, 
and he was actually couldn't go to the convention because he was at home trying to deal with his financial problems. What caused his financial problems? Well, good question, Brian. I, I don't know everything about that, but it's pretty obvious to me that Clay's interest um, in politics, um, in emancipation, um, it, it took a lot of his time. He stayed away from home a lot. He spoke and supported candidates. He spent his time preparing speeches, uh, doing all these things. And probably while it was going on, he was neglecting the financial side of his his life. And uh, he, uh, it, it could have been also economic times of that time. It could have been in a recession. Uh, crops could have failed. We, we don't know all the story, but I, I'm sure that his uh, uh, lack of paying attention to his finances was part of that anyway. And then a couple really sad things. Um, this is kind of a dark period in Clay's life. Uh, in 1851, he loved his son, Elisha Warfield Clay. Elisha, matter of fact, is one that was with him at Foxtown when he was almost killed. Uh, he dies of typhoid at 16 years of age. And then in 1857, uh, uh, Cassius Clay Jr. dies at age 11. Uh, I don't know what from. Uh, I don't have a record of what caused him to die, but uh, obviously some type of disease or something that took his life at a real early age. Children back then... Uh, the survival rate wasn't good as it is today, of course. It's very low. Very low, yeah. So if a child lives to adulthood back then, it was it was a... Well, what was the average age of the adults then? I mean, it wasn't... Oh, I would say probably 60. Yeah. It, yeah, so I, I don't know that to be true, but I would I would say if you lived to be 60 back then, you was doing well. Um, in 1856, Clay files bankrupt. He goes bankrupt. Files... files uh, Chapter 11, whatever, and uh, his estate is auctioned off. Now, he's very fortunate in this respect that he had a lot of family um, that jumped in and helped him. They bought the, the plantation back um, and saved his home, So he, and they gave him the right to live there. And I think some type of financial arrangement was made, um, and uh, so he, he avoids the uh, – that was a very embarrassing thing, that, by the way. I'm sure it would be for anybody, but – Oh, of uh, you know, for him being such a public person, uh, that was that was a devastating blow to him and his ego. So uh, it took a while for him to uh, recover emotionally from these losses. And, I, you know, you, you got to think the man was questioning himself, you would think, you know. But uh, then he has a meeting with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Mary Todd, who was Abraham Lincoln's wife, was raised in Lexington, Kentucky, and she was friends with Cassius Clay. They were childhood friends. Wow, didn't know that. That I didn't either in, until recently, and I didn't know that aspect of, of Clay's life. So he gets to meet uh, Lincoln. He gets to talk to him personally. He uh, he said he never forgot the first time he met him, what a ungangly long <laughs> form he was. He said he was sitting whittling under a tree listening to political speeches, and said Cassius went up and started a conversation with him, introduced him, and told him who he was, and he said he'd heard of him before. And he said he asked, just asked his, uh, his thoughts on slavery. And Lincoln, in his dry country way, he said, well, it's pretty simple for me. He said, I think whoever holds the corn ought to be able to eat the corn. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. he had a very simple, direct answer a great sense of humor. Uh, Clay was very impressed with him. He said he projected himself very well. 
Lincoln was a good orator. He Lincoln had a way of capital. You know, his country background he used to the max. Used it for his advantage. Exactly, and he was a lot smarter. And and I know history has has, has uh, kind of the term country dumb, which really they're they're a lot smarter than. Yeah, he, he may have wanted to you be. to think that. Yeah, he may have, yeah. Some of his opponents, he may have wanted them. And then when he get them on a debate stage, he would turn them inside out. So, right. yeah, he was he was a very uh, shrewd dude. There was no doubt about that. Then, you know, the election in 1860, Abraham Lincoln is elected, which causes sensation all through the South, uh, turmoil. You know, a war is coming. It's coming. You know, it's just there's no room for compromise. Uh, Clay wanted to be Secretary of War. Uh it's what the position that he wanted. Um, he got uh, his first appointment was minister to Spain. Now, he was in Madison County at this time when he learned of this, and, and, and that did not sit well with him at all. He did not want to go to Spain. I don't know what he had against that, but he did not like it at all. So he gets on a train, takes off to Washington, and meets with Lincoln. Uh, the uh, Secretary of War position had already been filled. But Lincoln says, okay, I will give you minister to Russia. So Clay says, well, that's that, that we can do. So for some reason, he'd rather have the Russian ambassador job than Spain. Spain. So he, takes, he goes back to uh, Madison County uh, and back to Whitehall, uh, informs his family of his new appointment. They uh, think of this, I guess, as a great adventure. So he loads a wife and children up, Mary Jane. And they sail across the Atlantic and and an arduous journey end up in St. Petersburg, Russia, there where he <laughs> met Tsar Alexander II. Um, you know, there's a protocol when you deal with royalty. And those those czars and everything, um, it was a different world than anything Clay had ever experienced. So he was he was very much uh, uh, not at ease because he really did not know how to conduct himself with that type of culture. Um, but he learned very quickly, and he did, he did very well. As a matter of fact, you know, he, he got right in there. They respected him. They knew about his, his life, and they had they'd learned a lot about him as well. And you might say he did his homework with the czar. He, he began to learn their culture, knew what, what their the etiquette protocols and things that he needed to do. He made some mistakes. But, uh, you know, etiquette protocols were so important that you, you could be actually imprisoned for breaking etiquette protocols wow. with the czar and the family. Huh. Yeah, it was that, it was that big. Uh, Mary Jane, the children, did not like it. They did not like Russia. Uh, he, they uh, stayed not even a year, and she wanted to come back to the States and come back to Madison County and take care of the farm. And so she left uh, Cassius over there by himself. But while he was there, he built um, some enduring friendships and oh, relationships yes. while he was there. Oh, yes. Uh, and I, I'm convinced that we would not have Alaska today if it hadn't been for Cassius Clay and laying the, the groundwork. It was not only um, making friendships, but it was also uh, bridging cultures. They began to understand America. America began to understand Russia. Clay was very good with people. He could be very persuasive, um, and he uh, he helped Lincoln with the Russians quite a bit. The Russians could influence Britain and France and some of them 
during the war to keep from supporting the Confederacy. So it was important uh, for the United States to maintain good foreign relations even in that time because the war was there. And these countries would likely go to whoever they think was going to win it. And so at first they played both sides. So a lot of goods that came into the Confederacy came through Britain and Spain and France and other European countries. So Russian influence was in all that as well as other things, but I, I really believe that Cassius Clay was the most uh, influential person when it come to the purchase of Alaska, but he didn't get, ever get credit for that. So after uh, his wife and family, st- after the first year, they uh, returned to America and right. Kentucky, and then what happens from well, there? Well, he was, he was ambassador there uh, for, for nine years. Oh, okay. And so he was there a long time. You know, that's a long time to be away from home. Uh, you know, while he was away from home, um, his wife, you know, the war was going on. Um, if, if we look at this thing from her perspective, she was there with this 2,250-acre plantation with slaves, with people to oversee. And, and while this was going on, she decided to build on to the, the family home. She turned it into a 10,000-square-foot Italianate mansion, basically. Wow. And uh, it, 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 was, it was quite an undertaking for her. Now, uh, I do know that Cassius's brother, Brutus Clay, who lived in Bourbon County, Kentucky, I know he came and, and helped her some, you know, and she relied on him a lot for advice, and, 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 and he helped as much as he could. But, uh, you know, it just didn't replace the fact that Cassius was a world away, and she was there. And then for the safety reasons, another thing that we, we don't think about, in 1864 and 5, there was a huge problem in Kentucky with guerrilla warfare. And basically a lot of these irregulars were just outlaws. And they were burning and pillaging. And, and uh, you know, she did have to have get some help to, from the, the, the government to help her from having her place destroyed or burnt because Clay had made a lot of enemies, let's oh, face it. I'm sure. So, you know, they were a target probably from day one. But uh, anyway, she survived all that. But it put the marriage in a, in a really bad strain. It, it, it's, it's like in his memoirs, he said in 1845, before all this happened, he threw his wedding ring away. Really? So, you know, it's, it's a long history of a strained relationship. And, uh, you know, he stayed a year longer than his nine years as ambassador to Russia. He stayed another year over there and in the States before he came home. You know, you, you know, I, so he was in no hurry to return no, back to Whitehall. No. And while he was in Russia, you know, there was a lot of stories about his uh, uh, relationships with women, and um, there was a Russian ballerina that supposedly he had a relationship with, uh, even the czar's wife that he spoke highly of and talked about a lot. And we don't know to what extent that relationship was or anything. I'm not... But they were very close. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's they, well known. Yeah, yeah, they were close. Yeah, and and there were other incidents over there. Some of them were, he was accused of inappropriate relationships. Yeah, and and the and they uh, the politicians got to hold that back here in the states, which caused a great embarrassment for his wife and family, and basically his daughters. Um, you know, they just kind of had nothing to do with him. You know, okay. it was. It was a it was a bad situation, and so he he began to lose his family, and and I guess maybe that's why he didn't rush home because maybe he felt like he didn't have as much to come home to, but when he did come home, 
um, his bedroom <laughs> was in the new part of the house on the third floor in an unheated room. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and he got man. home the dead of winter. <laughs> and so, Should have hung on to that wedding ring. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it was not a good situation. <laughs> he was he was he was put on the third floor, uh, treated not very good. Um, the old saying like a redheaded stepchild. So he he did not fare very well. Well, at least it wasn't the doghouse. Right. He did get in the house. Maybe that's maybe he was lucky just to get there with the way he acted. But anyway, uh, so in 1878, they filed for divorce. Mary Jane leaves Whitehall forever. Um, there is She did try to reconcile at some points with him, but he said that I'd rather uh, be thrown out the second floor window of, of that big house than I would go <laughs> back to that one. <laughs> he, he, he had made his mind up, and he wouldn't have no more part of that at all. Uh, then uh, then there's s- several different versions of this story, and there's one version, and I'm not sure which one is correct, to be honest with you, but the, the basis of the story is true. But it said one night, excuse me, <coughs> they were having a, a, a get-together, a party there, which Clay did a lot. He liked to entertain people. He enjoyed people's company, especially women. But he was having a a party there, and there was a carriage came down the driveway and and pulled up down there, and Clay just stopped and stared for a minute, and he said, you all have to excuse me. And he walked down to this carriage in front of his house, and they said a lady got out with a veil, and uh, they couldn't see her face, and she had this little boy by the hand, and said they took, stood and talked for a few minutes, and then he took the little boy by the hand and walked up to the house and introduced him as... Uh, Lonnie and uh, so this little boy had came from Russia uh, and it's real interesting is that Cassius Clay's illegitimate son or you know and it's quite a I don't know how to take Lonnie Clay Uh, he did give him his name Um, you wonder Okay, is this the Russian ballerina's son? And, and some historians adamantly say no, that's not true. Some say that the, uh, the czar had many children, and that he would give them away. Really? Yeah. And uh, so that culture was a little different than ours. So we got to understand things weren't. And he knew that Clay was a man of means. Maybe he sent this boy over to be taken care of because he couldn't take care of him over there. But anyway, uh, Clay in his memoirs talked about this. And if y'all will bear with me, I'd like to read what he said about this. He said, in the great city of St. Petersburg, that city of isolation and infant intrigue and silence, was born in the year 1866 a male child. To the secret of his parentage, I am the only living witness. And he said, and that secret will die with me. Okay. So that's his answer when people would ask him if that was his son. So it could have been an uh, illegitimate child of the czar. Yes. That he trusted Clay, knew he was a man of means. And, yes. Or it could have been from an affair of Clay's. It could have. Now, there was some interest in doing a DNA of, of descendants, but Lonnie uh, did not, If he, I can't remember, I think he may have had a daughter or two and they died without having children. So there's no trail. There's no, no trail to yes. trace the DNA, unless, the family lineage. Unless you exhume the body or something like that, which would be highly unusual. Well, what would that cost? Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and what would it what would it matter? Right. You know, really, but uh, it just satisfy a question that you know probably needs to be best left, left alone. alone right. yeah. 
So Clay uh, takes this child, he raises him. Uh, things are going pretty well, I guess, under the circumstances, but he notices the boy's starting to lose weight and, and, and not have energy. And so he's concerned about him, and, you know, he thinks maybe is he – is he homesick or has he got something wrong with him or whatever? Clay was a very perceptive guy, and most of us probably wouldn't think like he did, and that's one of the things that just fascinate me about him. But he picked up on the fact that he thought this child was being poisoned. Wow. And he was. And why, uh, we don't know. And I wonder if it's the – Ex-wife, I, family. I wouldn't want to accuse him of that because that's a very serious thing because the child could have died. But he did run the servants off that he had, and he, he took him to the doctor, and they found out he had been poisoned. Okay. So he got over it. Uh, he did fine. He went to college. He went to Center College, I think, in the Eastern, what, what's now Eastern. Uh, it's called something else then. But anyway, Lonnie went on and had a successful life and uh, grew to manhood. However, he left, you know, when he got – probably 18 years old, he left Cassius there all alone in the mansion by himself. So uh, we kind of transition into what I call the lonely years. Okay. And this is starting to be the twilight of his life, you know, when, you know, his political career's over. He's no longer uh, a public figure like he was. He's no longer relevant in the political scene. And so he, he starts to spend more time on his farm. Uh, he loved, still loved agriculture. Um, he would uh, he, he would be so lonely at times, they said he would open the shutters and just let the bats in or just have any kind of life to really? to, to let him know <laughs> that he wasn't so alone. You know, it's just so That's sad. That's sad. So he had, this, uh, he had this hired hand by the name of Tom Richardson, and Tom had a sister named Dora. She was 15 years old, and when he hired... Tom, uh, Dora came, and they would work on the farm with Clay and spend a lot of time with him, a tremendous amount of time. And uh, he basically fell in love with this 15-year-old girl. And he's how old? Eighty-eight or nine years old. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, uh, in his 80s. So, you know, this is – you can imagine the sensation when he announced that they were getting married. Especially in that day and time in the culture. Yeah. Well, he, he asked Tom, because she, she had no parents. She was orphaned. Okay. So she had no mother and daddy. So she, he asked her older brother, one of them, Tom, if he could have her hand in marriage. And he said, no. She said, he said, I want her to go to school. And so that flew all over Clay. <laughs> and so he, he, he ran him off the place. And he let Dora stay, but he run him off. But he asked uh, Dora's brother, Clell, and he said he didn't oppose the marriage if that was all right with her. Okay. So evidently this marriage was going to be something that was pretty much, you know, broadcast and known. So um, Clay's grandson, Green Clay, came to him and tried to talk his gra- some sense into his grandfather about it, and he pulled a pistol on him and told him if he didn't get off the farm, he'd kill him. <laughs> on his grandson. His grandson. So he was, you know, how much of this is the man senility? I, you know, I don't know all these questions. I would love to know. But James Lane Allen was, uh, was a reporter at that time, and James Lane Allen, you know, later was one of the best writers to, of literature that, you know, we, yes. of his time uh, in Kentucky. 
So James Lane Allen was sent to Whitehall to interview Clay <laughs> uh, the day of the wedding. Okay. Now, he was brave enough to go. And so he, he goes and knocks on the door, and he asks Clay if it was all right if he uh, interviewed him and talked to him and, and interviewed Dora, and he said, sure. He said, if, he said the people of the country would like to know about you and so forth. You know, even though he had lost his political influence and name, people were still fascinated by him. Yeah, yeah. At 89 years old. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so James A. Allen said, you know, I, I, I think people really want to know. And he said, well, I'm like Blaine. He said, if the people want to know about me, I will be happy to answer them. <laughs> So he let him in, and he, uh, he, he said that Clay was not – he said if I can live to be that age and have that much glow and stamina and vigor, he said there wasn't a hair on it, missing on his head except what was pulled out in a fight. fight. <laughs> and he said he was, he was a man of uh, uh, just totally happy that day. He said it never seemed so – he was just glowing. He was so happy. And um, he asked to take a photograph of Dora and uh, – Clay said, no, said she doesn't have anybody to properly dress her and, and said there won't be any photographs of her today. But there were some photographs taken that day, and if you go to Whitehall today, you can see those. But anyway, um, he, uh, he does get married, which created quite a sensation, as you can imagine. I mean, you, you know, down at the pool hall, they were toasting him, <laughs> and at the Women's Missionary Union and the Garden <laughs> Club, they were roasting him. You know? oh, I so, imagine. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that just so out there that even, you know, people just was outraged. So a judge, um, <laughs> Judge John Sinault, just said he was going to send High Sheriff Josiah Simmons <laughs> out to Whitehall <laughs> with seven men. And I can almost bet money I know how this was received. Yep. So he goes out to Whitehall, and evidently Clay knows they're coming. So he took those two cannons that he had at the True American newspaper. Yes, you know, they had them guarding right. the doors. Well, he has them sitting on the front porch. <laughs> so the high sheriff rides up and says that he thinks that Dora is being held against her will. And Clay says, as he said, okay, he said, I will let you speak with Dora. And she was on the second floor, and there's a little balcony out there. So he asked her to come out and speak to him and said, you tell them, you know, that you're whatever you want to tell them. And she said she was not being held against her will and that she, you know, was fine. And so Clay told him that, um, that she was free to do as whatever she wanted to, but there wasn't nobody going to take her. And when there was a little bit of an argument ensued, uh, Clay set those cannons off, <laughs> and they were shots exchanged, and the posse left, <laughs> outgunned, and Clay stayed. But I have this. I have this. Uh, this sheriff, uh, he sent a letter to Judge Chenault, who sent him to the house. Okay. And I'd like to read this. It's a little bit long, but I'll do the best I can. Go right ahead. He said, "I, I am reporting." about the posse, like you said, had to judge. We went out to Whitehall, but it wasn't no good. <laughs> I was, it was a mistake to go out there with only seven men, Judge. <laughs> the general was awful mad. He got to cussing and shooting, and we had to shoot back. The, only, the old general sure did object to being arrested. Don't let anybody tell you he didn't, and we had to shoot. 
I thought we hit him two or three times, but don't <laughs> guess we did. He didn't act like it. He came out right good considering I'm having some misery from two splinters of wood in my side. <laughs> Dick Collier was hurt a little when his shirt tail and breeches were shot off by a piece of horseshoe <laughs> and nails that come out of that old cannon. Have you seen Jack? He wrenched his neck and shoulder when his horse throwed him and as we were getting away. Judge, I think you'll have to go to Frankfurt and see John Young Brown, who was the governor, and he would send Captain Longmire up here with two light fielders, and he could divide his men, send some to the, of the, with the cannon around to the front of the house, but not too close, and the <laughs> others around <laughs> through the cornfield and end up around the cabins and spring house in the back porch. I think this might do it. Respectful yours, High Sheriff Josiah P. Simmons. <laughs> the moral of the story, do not bring a gun to a cannon fight. Nope. <laughs> Don't mess with Cassius Clay. The old general. Yeah, don't mess with Cassius Clay. So, uh, Dora, you know, that was the end of that. There was nothing else done about it. Um, you know, they left him alone, and there was nothing, I guess, they could do. I think of the Warfield family, his ex-wife's family, and you can just imagine the the children of Clay <laughs> and all the relatives, you know, you know, and he's marrying this 15-year-old girl, and it's just a sensation. Oh, I you know, and, it, and it, you just can imagine what their what their life is like and the ridicule they probably went through. How long did they stay married? They lasted lasted three years. Okay. Uh, and her sister was on the farm. Most of her family was there working on the farm, and her sister left, and Dora had gotten, I guess, unhappy, um, and she left. And after about a year, uh, Clay kind of, felt like that she was not going to come back and did not want to be there um, as his wife. So they he filed for divorce in 1898. Um, and then a you know, strange thing about Cassius was after he divorced Dora, um, he advertised in a local paper or in some publication for a, a wife. A mail-order bride. <laughs> yeah, and he got a lot of responses, and guess what? He never answered a one. Really? So about the time you you know you think you got him kind of figured out, he takes a turn on you. So he this this is a very complex. I, I can't I can't get my finger on Cassius Clay in, in, in that way he thought. Uh, Adora remarried, and she married a guy named Riley Brock. And he, this guy had had a checkered past. At first, Clay I guess kind of liked him. They came back and actually worked for Clay. He hired them, and they came back. Yes. So he hired his ex-wife and, ex and her new husband, new husband to, work to on come back and work on the farm. And he enjoyed their company. Uh, evidently, it didn't bother Riley Brock that, you know, his wife had, you know, been there. Or Cassius Clay. Yeah. And and Riley and Dora had a child. And, and really, what's neat is they named the child after Cassius Clay. They wow. named him Marcellus Clay Brock. Okay. So, you know, I thought that was something that was really neat that of her to do, uh, showed her respect for him anyway. And they moved into Whitehall on the farm there uh, and worked. Um, he began to figure out Riley Brock, and uh, Riley Brock um, was, uh, was trouble. Uh, he had been in a lot of trouble before. Uh, Clay began to figure him out. And then uh, one night, Clay, that's about 1900 uh, in that year, Clay sent a message to a good friend of his, Dr. C.C. C. Perry. He said to uh, 
said to come quick. Uh, there's trouble here. I need you. And so he got the sheriff or whoever, and they got to Whitehall, and they found Clay. He was downstairs in his uh, – at that time, he couldn't get up the steps, and he was staying what's now his study. He'd set a bed up in there, and that's where he was spending. He had gout really bad, and okay. he couldn't, couldn't do the steps. So when they got there, he had shot and killed one of these intruders inside the house. The guy was laying on the floor dead. And then they went outside and searched the property, and near the spring house, they found another dead guy there, and he had stabbed him with a bowie knife. <laughs> so at his age, he had fought off three intruders, killed two of them. Still was not afraid of a fight. No. I mean, at no. his age. Wow. He, uh, he began to get in really bad shape after that. Uh, that was kind of the beginning of the end for Cassius Clay. He, uh, he, he got to where he was, could not get around uh, his declining health. Um, in 1901, <laughs> Clay got so paranoid of people, he would not allow hardly anybody to come see me and his own family. Um, he just became very, very paranoid. I guess, is this senility? Sure, uh, who knows? But if you had as much trouble in your life as probably he had, there's no wonder that you'd feel that way. Um, sheriff went out there, and they, they were really afraid to, to go around him, but they went out there and <laughs> asked him to pay his taxes, and he said, well, when, when, I, when you start protecting me, I'll start paying my taxes. <laughs> so he ran the sheriff off. So I guess they just left him alone. Um, in 1903, his health really began to fail. Um, he he uh, dies on... July the 22nd, 1903, there's a huge storm that swept across the bluegrass, and it said it leveled every barn in the country. Uh, lightning struck the statue of Henry Clay in the Lexington Cemetery and took the head of it off. <laughs> and they said old Cash went out in a storm. So Just like he lived his life. Just like he lived his life, yes. All right, you want to talk about um, what happened to Dora? Well, Dora, she got away from Brock, I think. She went on, she lived, she died, at, and she was 33 years old. Um, she died young of natural causes. Uh, Lonnie went on and lived um, uh, a, a normal life. He died in Ohio. Uh, he had got into some uh, businesses up there. He done, done well, just an average guy. He, didn't, he, he wasn't into politics or anything like that. Um, the, the daughters, you know, were big in the suffrage movement. Mary and Laura were big in the women's suffrage movement. And that was something he wasn't a supporter of. No. Unlike anti-slavery, but you know, th you there's would, a conflict there. I don't see I, I don't, yeah. It, today we see that. I, I think he thought that it was men's place to take care of women, make decisions okay. and all, I guess. You know, I don't know. It's kind of the way I read through his memoirs. Um, how did he get his name? Okay, we're going. Oh, to yeah. Uh, before we do that, let's let's talk about the house. Okay. And then I know you you visited, and people can go visit the house. And there's some paranormal stuff that goes along with the house. There's a story. Right. Right. All right let's let's talk about it real quick. Well, let's talk about the, the house today is owned by Eastern Kentucky University, and they have done, by the way, a marvelous job. I want to commend them for. The house went through another storm here a couple of years ago and took part of the roof off. And uh, they have done a marvelous job of taking care of that property. It's as probably as nice as it's ever been. Wow. And I was so impressed with the tour that we had there. Uh, the lady that gave the tour did a wonderful job. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place that you really should see. 
But I want to challenge anybody that wants to go there, if you haven't been there and you think you're interested in him, is read about him as much as you can. There's a whole lot more to the, to him than what I've said in this podcast. I mean, this could take days if you started really getting into Cassius Clay. But, you know, read as much as you can before you go. And when you go there, you, 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 you know, this is a, a huge mansion. It's a very imposing, beautiful place. And listening to our podcast, this is the third uh, part, listen to these too before you go. That'll yeah, help. Yeah, right. And then when you go, you you get a sense. You feel. I mean, you can almost feel his presence there. And you look at the old photographs, of which you can see him sitting in the rooms, and the rooms are just like they were then. And so it's just a great hi- history experience if if you want to do that. Now I spoke with a tour guide some years ago that worked there for several years, and she's talking about the paranormal in that house. She said she came in one morning. Her and the uh, park manager came in one morning. The park manager went into the office in the back of the house, and her job was to go through the house to check everything uh, out before they started letting tours in. You know, just do a walkthrough, make sure everything was in order, if anything needed to be swept or whatever, you know, all kinds of housekeeping issues you might have. So she'd walk through the upstairs, and she was coming down the main staircase downstairs and said she looked in the hall, and there stood a little boy. And said she just stopped, and it was like he was in, like, period 1800 dress okay and he was just standing there and said the cutest little boy and he she just stopped and said she called out the other lady's name and said come to the hall and said she soon as she walked to where she could see the hall she got a glimpse of him and he just faded away oh that's creepy and people that have worked on that farm uh have worked around there you know back in the 1970s that house was restored beulah nunn governor louis nunn's wife had a great hand in preserving that house, and she actually went there and stayed uh, in a camper and, and helped uh, with the restoration of that house. She had a great interest in Cassius Clay, and she knew the treasure that that was to Kentucky and his story. And um, uh, there was, there was a, just a great respect for people that had been around the house before it was restored. You know, I knew a guy went there, went there in the 1960s. He was going to Eastern, and... They were using the house to store hay in or grain. Oh, really? And he said, buddy, you didn't want to be around there after dark. He said, as soon as it got dark, you wanted out of there. He said, that place, you know, there's people that see images and windows. And right. There's a, there's a book written about that. I'm sorry I don't have it with me, but um, it's uh, it's there's a book about the paranormal. All right. So let's get to why he was nicknamed the Lion of Whitehall. In his later years... When he was alone a lot, uh, people that would try to go visit him, uh, especially late afternoon or night, they said you could pull up in front of the house and you could hear the old general walk in the halls of that big house reliving those political speeches, reliving those fights, and said you could hear him roar. I mean, he, you could, he'd hit a bold and projecting voice. They said, you could hear that old man up there just giving it to him. And that's where the name, the Roaring Lion of Whitehall, that's where it came from. So now we know. It's a legend. All right. Thank you for being part of the Uncommon History of the South podcast. If you would like to help support our podcast, please share our podcast with your friends. Uh, Leave a five-star review and comment. This will help others find our podcast and make sure to friend us on Facebook. Also, if you have any questions about any of our podcasts you can go to our spotify channel uh, you can
can leave a voice message uh, on our Spotify webpage, um, and we'll, we may include it in one of our next episodes. We may see if uh, Harold can answer the question for you. We'll see you next week.